this is really a call for us to um, think about in a world that hates us so much, we need to love ourselves and each other um, more than this world hates us. Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. My guest this week will be the human rights activist and former Amnesty International field director, Kalyan Mendoza. Just as a quick intro, Kalyan has spent over 20 years fighting for social justice, from LGBT equality to working for Tibetan independence to anti-racist organising, and much, much more. Most recently, he was field director with Amnesty International USA, and he also led the Tactical Safety and Security Unit within the Human Rights Observation Deployments in Ferguson to the DNC and the RNC, also in Charlotte, and most recently in Standing Rock. His work as an activist, as an organiser, as well as a trainer of other activists and organisers, has been recognised by human rights icons like the Dalai Lama of Tibet, and it's been featured in publications from the New York Times to Out magazine, and he's been honoured by many local governments across the US. In this conversation, our goal is to present an accessible and engaging introduction to social justice concepts that can often be a little bit jargony. So we talk about things like privilege and microaggressions and discrimination with the goal of, certainly not covering everything, but the goal of providing a quick crash course that anyone can sit down and listen to or stand up and listen to, if you feel so compelled. We're also real about some of the challenges that face social justice movements, and Kalyan offers a strong critique of what he calls call-out culture, an aggressive, confrontational approach to calling out discrimination. He argues a a more compassionate, dialogue-based approach is the way to go. So, for those of you who haven't talked through this set of concepts yet, I hope you find this a good introduction. And for those of you who've maybe been put off from this sort of social justice language before, I hope you'll give it another go and and listen with an open mind. One final point is that neither me or Kalyanne are representing a particular organisation here. Any views expressed are our own. And with that said, it's my pleasure to bring you Kalyan Mendoza. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here today with Kalyan, who has worked in movement work, organizing, and social justice for quite a while now. And we're just going to be talking today about the basic social justice concepts and the future and the future of them. Kalyan, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you so much, Toby. I'm excited to be on here. Do you want to just tell our listeners a bit about yourself, how you got involved in this sort of work and some of the things that you've done? Most definitely. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I started way back in junior high school, back in the uh, early 90s as a student organizer. Um, on my campus, there were um, numerous sweeps by the San Jose Police Department um, to, uh, to uh, inter- quote-unquote interview uh, Filipino and Vietnamese students um, with regard to the gang affiliation. Mm-hmm. Um, I organized an action at the Board of Supervisors meeting calling this, um, uh, you know, racial profiling. Um, myself and um, other organizers were also brought in and interviewed and asked um, questions about our um, uh, gang affiliations. From that, um, we um, we were able to basically win a, um, a task force um, made up of students um, and community partners that oversaw um, the um, SJPD at that time. And since then, um, I've worked alongside um, the Tibetan community, uh, my own community, Filipino, LGBTQ, um, all of the communities um, that I, uh, uh, and identities that I inhabit and work with. Um, and most recently, uh, was working with uh, Amnesty International USA as a field director, uh, um, supervising field organizers across the country and uh, working on our human rights observer work with the research team. Great. One thing I should add for our listeners is Kalyan very generously agreed to come on today, even though he's recovering from a cold. He has, and this is a weird compliment to pay you, probably one of the best public speaking voices I've ever heard, which is weird given how like very laid back and like empathetic you are in normal conversation. In terms of sheer technical ability to project, I've seen you like audibly talk to 90 people over the sound of like jackhammers on the in in the background so that's a bit of an aside but uh thank you (laughs) um i have have, uh, older tibetan women who have rocked uh, protests for years uh, that taught me that so thank you yeah (laughs) so let's just jump straight into this because i think Some people who are listening will already be down with a lot of what we're talking about. Some will sort of have heard of it and not know, but there'll be a large category of people who will, who when we talk about privilege or microaggressions or whatever, those terms will come to them pre-stigmatized. It just seems like there's an industry online right now of either not understanding or willfully misunderstanding what we're talking about when we talk about these things, and I don't want this to be like the, the, the meat of the interview, but how do, you, how do you think about that? And how do you, what would you say to someone who has only encountered these concepts through a ne- very negative filter? I always have to ask what makes people so averse to social justice, which essentially is about human rights and equity. Um, and most of the times I do have our relatives and other folks in my periphery that um, have shared really uh, straight up hateful memes that um, don't come from a place of understanding, but rather from a place of just um, uh, invalidating um, work that's happened. I think it comes from a place of fear um, and uh, willfully 
holding on to uh, what folks know. Um, and I think as we've seen, at least in this country, during um, different transitions um, and moments of awakening, uh, the majority has not reacted well to it. That when we um, when we do talk about social justice, that we really center, you know, human rights, love, compassion, those, um, you know, those universal values that we all have, um, and just try to, um, I like to say decolonize, but um, really uh, make the make it more accessible for everyone. Um, I know that folks who are like, what is a cis heteropatriarchy? Uh, rather than breaking it down that way, meeting folks where they're at. So, uh, because like, I found it, um, I found that when you actually have a conversation with folks and it's not a yelling match, that people are more likely to, um, at the very least, leave that conversation thinking, um, thinking about it. Um, civil discourse um, from... If you look at any Facebook or um, uh, any Facebook conversation, has fun out of, sometimes out of control, um, and we need to one think about how much energy we're putting into that, and two think about our approach. Yeah, and it's perhaps a sign of uh, how how far down the rabbit hole I've gone that I can hear cis heteronormative patriarchy and just just completely understand what you meant without yeah. <laughs> without that being jargon. <laughs> Um, well, let's actually just get into some of these terms, right? Like, because on the one hand, sometimes jargon is useful. On the other, sometimes, like, it can be a barrier. So let's just start with some key terms. You said structures of oppression. This is pretty much the center of what social justice is working against. What do you mean by structures of oppression? Because I think most people think there's good and bad people and they're, they're going to do what they're going to do, whereas the way most social justice people see it as, is as more systematic than that, right? Mm -hmm, definitely. Structures of oppression such as racism. When I talk about racism, um, yes, I'm talking about the, um, the racism that happens when someone uses a slur, but um, more, um, I'm more focused on dismantling the entire system of racism and what does that look like? So this country was built on um, racist ideologies, uh, manifest destiny, um, uh, colonization coming over um, to subjugate and educate um, and eventually uh, try to commit, uh, uh, committing genocide against the native population. Um, the use of um, Africans as slave labor, uh, which is um, intrinsically tied to how um, this country was able to uh, fund itself in its nascent stages. Um, the, um, these things, when people say, well, racism's over, it's not over. It continues today, to, to this day. If you look at the number of um, black men who are in prison, the number of black men in prison does not match the number of black men in um uh, the population of black men in uh, U.S. society. So one must question, why is that? One, mar one of the uh, most marginalized groups in this country um, are Native Americans. And if you look at the rates of um, alcoholism, of um, uh, uh, domestic violence, of 
um, disappearances and of incarceration and of police killing um, or uh, killings by police of Native Americans, uh, one has to wonder why is um, why is that? Where does this come from? And if you um, take a few steps back, you, you could see that like, it's a systemic disenfranchisement of that community, whether it's through the um, the um, uh, the reservation system or the boarding school system. These are things that have been instituted um, by the U.S. government that continues its um, uh, uh, its oppression to this day um, of these communities, leading us to uh, think of them as uh, um, Native American communities as almost um, pretty much uh, gone or disappeared. Um, quite frankly, in this country, we haven't really spoken about Native American issues until uh, Standing Rock happened in um, April of 2016. So when um, folks who do social justice work talk about systems of oppression, we're talking about addressing um, large-scale systems that affect the lives of so many people um, within, uh, within that particular group. Right. And I think... I think, like you say, there's sort of an emotional reaction to hearing that that people have, right? Which is either, like, it's not my fault personally, or to victim blame, to say, well, you know, maybe if black men go to prison more, or if Native Americans are susceptible to alcoholism more, it's just because those communities, those individuals in those communities are making worse decisions. But that's sort of, you, you've got to apply it back and say, well, okay, even if that is the case, why? Is, the, mm -hmm. is it genetics or is it history and culture? Because it's going to be one of the two, right? And I think we can pretty confidently say it's not genetics. There's no innate differences between races or anything like that. So where did where did that come from? It comes from um, in the case of black men in prison, a criminal justice system that had its origins in violently oppressing that minority, and even after that, in a, in a, in a sense, viewed itself as protecting white people from them rather than protecting everyone. So the sort of like, I, what I hear people saying is, well, you know, don't blame me for other people having bad lives, but you've got to you've got to go back a layer behind that, right? Exactly. You have to go deeper, and I think everyone has that ability to critically analyze um, why things are the way they are. Um, and when folks do try to deflect and say, well, that's, you know, I had nothing to do with that, I ask, as like, but do you benefit from it? For instance, I benefit from misogyny. I benefit from the um, oppression of um, women. I... Um, uh, I benefit um, from all of these um, uh, privileges that I inhabit. And these are all things that I have um, uh, either um, knowingly or unknowingly, you know, these are advantages I've unknowingly or unknowingly gained. Um, and regardless of whether or not I, um, you know, I was an agent in that oppression, I still benefit from it. So that's something that we need to um, we need to talk about. It's just it's not about just blaming people. It's about us taking accountability as a society and figuring out ways to make things more equitable, because that's the only way that we're able to go um, uh, to go forward in um, in this world. So together. 
So yeah, let's let's move on to the word privilege because if I think there's one social justice concept that really gets misunderstood, it's this. So we talk all of all well, we as in people who who are sort of in social justice, right, talk all the time about privilege, like white privilege, male privilege, whatever, and. I think this gets misheard. So in, in you know, your own words, what does it mean to have privilege? Is this something people should be feeling bad or guilty about? Or is it more something to be aware of and like cognizant of? I'm, I'm sort of putting words in your mouth. So w- w- <laughs> what, does, what does privilege mean to you? Yeah, privilege is um, simply earned or unearned advantages that... Um, allow you to advance in society. Um, and a privilege I have is I am able-bodied, even though I, um, uh, I'm seen as able-bodied, um, even though I have a, you know, a, um, a, hearing, dis- a hearing impairment. Um, or I am viewed as a um, cisgender male. Um, and with that comes the privilege of people thinking that if I walk into a room, I'm more likely to be the leader. Um, I'm more likely to know what I'm doing. Um, I can't tell you the number of times that um, I have co-facilitated a training where people uh, would address me more than my co-facilitator, who would um, uh, most likely, most usually, be a cisgender woman. Um, privilege is um, these things that we um, that we benefit from, and I think it's something that we do need to be aware of. And um, uh, a lot of times folks... Because um... this is like, I think, a big misapprehension in that because when you talk about people being less fortunate than you, it makes people feel guilty, right? And mm-hmm. it's not its not even like racial oppression, sexism. It's even stuff like seeing an image of like a starving kid on TV prompts something of defensiveness in you, right? And I think yeah. just to rewind what you just said, there's... One thing that's really important is we, and by we I mean sort of people who are engaged in social justice activism, our goal is not to make you feel guilty, because if nothing else, it's actually not a particularly useful emotion. It's a paralyzing emotion, right? And you see so often, like, i got to call out my pale-skinned brethren, but white people in particular, really just wellowing in how bad they feel about all of this and like that's great but what are you doing you know like that that's actually not what we're asking and then the male privilege thing if you're sort of doubting if you're listening to what we're saying and thinking um you, you know we're, we're we're maybe being overreactive or come on is it really that bad just like i can talk for myself the number of times my wife has made an argument and then i've made the exact same point And then for some reason, when I said it, people just understood it, you know? Mm -hmm. Once you start, just just have that software running in your brain. Just notice, if you're a guy, how you can just say the same thing a woman said just before you, and you'll be the one recognised for that point. It it doesn't matter where you are, in conservative, liberal, different, you know, cultural settings, whatever. And once you see it, you really can't unsee it. It's kind of like... um the whole concept of kind of like awakening to um, uh, to the reality of the world, right? Once we 
um, start to ha- uh, identify um, these different types of phenomena. It's like, oh, wow. For instance, um, one of my friends challenged me. She, um, she said, uh, next time you're in a meeting, um, take a tally of the number of times that women were interrupted versus how men were interrupted. Um, and this was like way in my early part of my process. And it tripped me out that um, every single meeting I would um, I would go to would have very similar results where men um, were, the number of um, times women were interrupted was vastly um, uh, higher than the number of times men were interrupted. So it's all about being situationally aware about um, uh, the situ- you know, the situations that we're in um, and starting to identify that. I would assume many of the meetings you just referenced were not, you know, you weren't going into the Republican Country Club or anything. These were presumably meetings of social justice activists, right? So yes. these behaviours are... They're not universal in the degree. I'm sure it's worse in some places, but but it, it's sort of everywhere. And then this also goes to sort of what we're asking people to do, because, like I said, the goal isn't or shouldn't be to make people feel uncomfortable or guilty. That's a byproduct. If it happens, you work through it. But just to stay with this one example of men getting more attention, more recognition, talking over women... There's a few really basic behaviors you can implement. So you can, you know, if you're like me and you're always the one talking in meetings, you can take a step back. But then more specifically, you if you see a woman being interrupted, not every time it happens, but just make it a point. You can say, oh, you know, sorry, I actually I wanted to hear what Jane was saying and just exercise a bit of male privilege to turn the mic back to her. And then also just recognizing making sure you're giving equal recognition, right? So if a, if a woman makes a good point, say, oh, that was a really good point, I appreciated hearing it, so that it just draws, again, the attention and so on back. And I think when people think about social justice, they sort of imagine being in the streets, which we've both done, you more than me, but um, it, 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 a lot of it just starts with small kindnesses and courtesies and recognising that some people are denied those kindnesses more than others. Did that make sense? Yes, it definitely does. And it's it's about being a decent human being, <laughs> That's that's essentially it, right. and recognizing that um, there are messed up things in the world, and because of that, people uh, do not experience, might not experience life um, in the same way that you do. So, in um, it's your uh, job as a you know as a person on this planet to try to make life a little less crappy for everyone here. I know that's essentializing it. <laughs> Um, in a way, but I think that if people look at it in that way, rather than trying to figure out how do we fight for this grand revolution, um, then things can be a little bit better than when we came into this world. Yeah, and I think it also makes it more comprehensible to people who haven't been sort of through the induction process that we have, which is like... Before we get to the big political stuff, let's just talk about how we can treat the people around us nicely, you know? Let's just talk about everyone in the room feeling comfortable. You know, let's start there and and build up. Um, One final term I wanted to just quickly cover before we get to, like, the future of social justice work is 
microaggressions, because again, I think this is one that gets willfully misunderstood. But what I, I'm, I'm going to let you define it first before I. I... Sure, Dr. Um, Gerald Wingsu, um, uh, who basically um, created the term microaggression, um, uh, states it's. Uh, an everyday encounter of subtle discrimination that people of various marginalized groups experience throughout their lives. An example of this is something that I have experienced is sometimes I will um, wear Filipino um, uh, regalia um, to a conference. And some I'll of, have some of which is absolutely beautiful, by the way. I hope that isn't <laughs> white tokenizing, but your, some of your necklaces and stuff are amazing. Thank you. I try. I try. <laughs> Um, but I, you know, it's it's nice for people to be like, oh, that's um, that's really pretty. But I've been at conferences where I've had, um, especially older white people, uh, for for instance, grab my pineapple silk um, tunic, and I'm like, don't touch me with your hands. And they don't understand that. They think that they're, you know, um, they think that that's. Um, they're like, no, I, I, you know, I meant to um, meant to compliment you. But in the course of my life, I've had a lot of white people, um, mostly, mainly um, uh, white men, gay and straight, put their hands on me without my consent. So if you think about it, and I think, um, Toby, you described it very well um, once where it's like um, uh, either a mosquito bite or getting sliced, you know, um, uh, over and over and over and over and over again. Um, after a while, it just becomes... Um, uh, absolutely insufferable. So, um, uh, it, um, microaggressions are the small things that happen that um, build up over time. And you hear about this a lot with, um, especially black women having people ask, can I touch your hair? Or um, I've had, um, when I would go out to, um, to different meetings, people tell me that I speak really good English. Um, <laughs> So it's, it may seem like a small or insignificant thing, but over the course of a lifetime, it amounts to um, uh, being eroded down almost to like a, a, a raw nerve. Yeah, so I think what you were referencing is I have a really basic training on these where I sort of just like tell a story. So I'm like, let's just take um, male, female, right? But you could do it with anything, you know. A lot of times men will use microaggressions on women that are sort of like, hey babe, hey sweetie, hands on the body, not even like sexual, but hands on the body without consent, stuff like this, right? And it's really easy when you're in the position of, I'll use the jargon, when you're in the privileged position, right? So like when you're the man in that situation, to be like, this is not a big deal, get over it. And mm -hmm. the point is, yeah, if it only ever happened once, sure, it probably wouldn't be a big deal. But when the woman says to you, you know what, I am not your babe, I am not your sweetie, you know, maybe on her way into work she got catcalled, maybe on her way into work almost certainly she was um, had to look at, you know, big posters of scantily clad objectified women. Maybe um, someone made a comment about something being man's work, maybe someone was slightly sexually aggressive in the way they got on the elevator with her, maybe whatever, right? And then when it's the 30th one of those things, you're like, you know what, I've 
fucking had it with you. Like, no, Mm -hmm. don't call me babe. And I think when you're the guy in that situation, you don't see the 31s leading up to that. You see the one that prompted an outburst. And a big part of, like, the sort of ideas that, that social justice types are propagating is to see the 30 that, that led up to it, um, if, that, mm. if that's the thing you were referencing there. Yes, yes, it definitely was. Okay. Yeah. Um, is there anything you'd like to add with microaggressions before we move on to, like, the, the future? Um, I would just like to plug, there's a great book by Professor Kevin Nadal on um, microaggressions and traumatic stress that um, takes a look at how microaggressions are um, lead up to uh, clinical um, trauma. Um, it's a it's a fascinating book, and I think it's something that we're um, uh, that it's going to be a field that we're going to have uh, much uh, more um, scholarly work around. Um, because I I know that when um, I talk to folks who are not privy to this, they're like, oh, you guys are just making up things, right? Um, and it's like actually there is like. There's scientific evidence and studies that show um, this leads to um, uh, 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 mental um, mental health issues. This leads to um, addiction, uh, not addiction, but um, uh, abuse of um, substances. Um, so um, that's one thing I would just like add to that is like there, there. It, this is a um, somewhat new field, um, but is gaining traction um, by the day. One final point for people who are still coming from a you're exaggerating point of view is very few of us are never in the non-privileged space and just think that for every one of us there is something that really sticks in your crawl. And so I would challenge everyone even for, you know, I'm fairly privileged, I'm a white, straight guy, right? But for everyone, there's some sort of vector of the time you're looked down upon. And just think about how you feel, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, I really appreciate that approach that you have where you question where folks are coming from, because I think that's a perfect way to have a teachable moment, right? Um, whenever someone has said something, what I feel might be problematic, I like to come from a place of um, not assuming and just like ask, like if uh, one of my um, youth activists one time was like, oh yeah, that's so gay. I'm like, oh, what does that mean? They're like, oh, it's it's dumb. I was like, well, how, you know, how does gay and dumb, you know, um, how does that equate to one another? So just helping folks along that rather yeah. than outright being like, you're messed up. It is something that we can do as allies as well that I think works really well. If we hear something in earshot um, or witness something that is um, um, is potentially a microaggression, and the marginalized um, person in community, just like you can tell when someone's had it, you can then ask that question and like um, bring it up right there and address it right there, and be the one to take on the emotional labor of addressing it rather than leaving it on the marginalized person. Yeah, and it, just to revisit this, it doesn't make you a bad or an evil person that you've used mm-hmm. microaggressions, right? Because I remember like. When I was in high school, right, you, the gay thing, right, the number mm-hmm. one thing you could say to denigrate something was to call it gay, right? Mm-hmm. And to the point where it didn't even make sense. It'd be like, you know, yeah, man, your bike's dead gay-like. Um, that's kind of 
how they talk there. Your bike's gay. Well, what, what it likes other red bikes? Like, what are we, what are we talking about here? But um, it, it's saying that the gay is something that can be used to mock, or that there's something inherently ridiculous or silly or not serious or, or, or even like not moral about gayness, which there isn't, right? So that, that is something that, that people would be within their rights to get upset by. But my God, this was hardwired into me. It took a lot of like being in these sorts of circles to really unlearn calling things gay because it was just so ubiquitous, right? Like, Definitely. I, I get it, you know? Um, so, so let's move on to, like, the future of this. Because here's the thing, and here's, like, the central challenge that I think we need to solve and we haven't, is this stuff is ubiquitous. It is drilled into you. And you'll, you know, you'll be perpetuating it and, you know, slighting people and offending them and, like, using stuff that... that can make them feel less than without even realizing it right you can get better but it really is the water in which we swim and there is a caricature of social justice people which does have a degree of truth to it that we are very reactive to this stuff that we're always getting offended by everything that we're really policing people's language that like it, it's actually quite difficult to be in these spaces for long long periods of time and i think sometimes that is just that it's a caricature but it can it can get a bit much sometimes and um i saw a while ago you shared an article called excommunicate me from the church of social justice which i'll link to and you said this was something that spoke to you so i'd just like to ask you about that and just like on a personal level what was your reaction to that article yeah so it um, the writer talks about this fear of um, being in activist spaces because it's almost become toxic to um, to speak because someone uh, there's something called call out culture, which is I, I feel is not helpful, especially when you are working within your community. Um, an example of this is um, uh, I and I'm I'm guilty of. Um, uh, contributing to this, um, in right after um, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, there were a group of um, Asian American activists around the country that wanted to start addressing anti-Black racism within our own community. And in that, um, one of the calls was to have conversations with our family members, many of whom hold anti-Black um, uh, sentiments. And there was a, I felt, um, I understood the intention, but I felt the impact was going to be extremely negative because the, um, there, there was a sense of uh, making your family feel like garbage for something that they might have not understood rather than coming from a place of compassion. And uh, I found it really um, uh, problematic in that we were going to re-traumatize um, our families rather than trying to um, educate them. And I know some folks had really good conversations with their families. Others, it became um, just like a call-out thing, like mom and dad, you're racist because of X, Y, and Z, and you leave them with that. Um, I think, at least in the Filipino community, there's definitely is um, uh, uh, racism, and we can thank um, the um, Spanish colonizers for, um, for that um, legacy. But 
rather than uh, coming from a place of compassion. And if um, your family uh, were former refugees who escaped and who have been, um, your parents have been trying to um, scratch together a life for you and were able to send you to university, an elite university where um, we, you might have been lucky enough to um, get this analysis and now you're throwing it back in their face, we need to question why, why we're doing that and why we're coming in from that way. Um, I don't like being in spaces where call-out culture is the only way to address things. Um, I think we need to come from a place of love, a love place, you know, love for ourselves um, and a love for our people. It doesn't help, and it's not, quite frankly, it's not strategic to jump down people's throats right. um, constantly, you know? Let's have a conversation. Um, let's really think about, um, you know, no one was born woke. No one was born with um, this uh, level of political social consciousness. Um, let's help to midwife people into a place where they can um, understand and really just have um, uh, center um, love in this. I think Grace Lee Boggs said it best in a conversation with Angela Davis back in 2012. Um, we need to move away from protest organizing and towards visionary organizing. And to me, what visionary organizing means is to bring everyone together to come up with a shared vision of what the future can look like. Rather than being reactive, let us work together to build and create that which we are trying to protect and, um, um, and maintain that which we want to have, what is a world that we want? And if we replicate the same colonizer um, uh, patterns of uh, denigrating those who don't um, have the information to us, we should be ashamed of ourselves, quite frankly. So I think that, and I, I'm, I'm not about shaming people, and I know that um, uh, this might come off as that, but I, I this is really a call for us to, um, think about in a world that hates us so much, we need to love ourselves and each other um, more than this world hates us. So. Yeah, I just want to, to the people who go on about, oh, you know, social justice warriors and this and you know that and the other, I just really want them to just listen to like the last two minutes of you talking, because that is, is as reasonable and as nuanced approach as you're gonna get in, in the face of like genuinely really difficult stuff that, that many people are struggling against, right? Let me, let me give you my reaction to that article, and I want you to tell me what you think of this, because here's what I thought, is I've heard people say a whole load of times that, you know, social justice warriors are, 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 are like, overreactive, and too, it, 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 the call-out thing can be too much, but I honestly haven't taken it that seriously when it's coming from the outside, right? When it's mm -hmm. people who don't know or understand what we're talking about. But what I noticed with the, the excommunicate me from the Church of Social Justice was the people who were sharing it and saying that this really spoke to them were all from multiple marginalized identities. Let me just decode myself there. They were all people who had multiple things about them that could or would be discriminated against. So like, I think the article was written by a queer trans person of color. I hope I got that right. And mm -hmm. the people who were sharing it tended to be people of color who were also gay or also trans, or you know what I mean? They're people who, who you know, can genuinely claim to, to have had all sorts of discrimination thrown at them. And I found it interesting that that seemed to be the group 
that it spoke to the most, because I won't lie, like, I personally have had some moments where I sort of inwardly roll my eyes in social justice circles, and I sort of think to myself, you're, you're being a bit much. But I usually don't take it so personally for two reasons. One, superficially, do I want to be the white guy telling a bunch of, of uh, uh, people of colour or black people that they're wrong about racism? Not really. It's just not a great look, right? But then the second point is I have other places I can go where I feel accepted or welcomed when I need to blow off steam. So I'm just thinking, like, last night, right, I live on Staten Island. This is, this is Trumpville, right? They, they love the guy here. I go to my local bar. It's in a bowling alley. It's pretty much all white. Not always, but usually, like, they stand up when a patriotic song comes on. You know, like, it's, it's that sort of place. I'm fine. I'll get the odd stupid question about being British, but I'm fine. If I were a trans queer person of colour, would I be? Well, maybe not, right? And when I sort of feel that social justice spaces are being a bit much, I can just go into other spaces. But if you're coming from a place of multiple marginalised identities, these are maybe the only places you feel like you can get sanctuary. And there's got to be something really not okay about that one sanctuary now becoming a palace that people who, if anyone, has, you know, licence to talk about being discriminated against like black trans people do, right? If they're saying that these spaces are now feeling threatening to them, we've really gone wrong somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And no, I, I talked for a bit. I'd, I'd be interested in your reaction to that. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I agree. I think that um, there, there's this new wave of... Um, uh, activists that are, you know, coming into their own analysis and their own uh, frameworks around critical theory um, that are really, you know, hardcore, like, I'm going to call this out because that means that um, we can address it. But it's um, it's something that I was lucky enough to have been mentored um, uh, by folks to be like, hey, you need to chill. Um, I remember back in 2004 when I was taking notes at the Women of Color Conference for one of um, uh, our Asian Pacific Islander caucus, uh, we were talking about how um, uh, no one would, uh, it, was, it was a light moment where we were laughing about uh, that no one would ever be using white supremacy um, in the general um, population. Um, and now we hear about it um, all over the news. And at that same conference, um, there was a... Um, a lot of spaces for how do we um, democratize and make this really people powered, uh, this word people powered. And what it meant was building um, bridges with folks from privileged backgrounds or um, privileged identities um, and building them up, whether that mean um, white allies, cis, um, uh, cis male allies or cis allies, um, straight allies, and having that um, very strategic approach at um, uh, finding messengers that um, others can actually relate to. And it was um, out of that wanting to build together that I feel, at least at that time, things were extremely hopeful. But right now, I think that trauma and um, uh, both primary and secondary trauma are surfacing in ways that make folks within social justice spaces want to lash out at one another. And that's not helpful. And that's not what we're about. 
Yeah, particularly if the people you're lashing out at are, to use the jargon, less privileged than yourself, right? Exactly. Exactly. Because exactly. I, I've got some, like, radical, radical, black radical friends who would, in response to what we're saying, would essentially say, well, fuck you, white guy, I don't need to care about your feelings. That's not what's going on here. I mean, I can actually hear that to an extent, but I've seen white women call out and scold black trans people, black mm-hmm. trans women, right? And really, like, dress them up and down for some, like, in a way that just seems to lack self-awareness. I'll put it no more strongly than that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's kind of, um, you have to take, uh, take a moment and you're like, what, what just happened, right? So, final thoughts is we've seen a really remarkable evolution of this ideology, right? Like, there's this whole set of interlinked concepts of, you know, intersectionality, microaggressions, privilege, whatever. And they're all, these have really come in the last 20 years, maybe, that this has mm-hmm. become like a fully fledged thing. That, I mean, okay, 20 years is a while, but it's actually not that long a time when it comes to the evolution of political thought structures, right? Because we're still debating liberalism versus socialism versus libertarianism, right? These are these are belief systems that came about in the 1800s and they've changed since then. But it really is that mm-hmm. sort of like ve- like like intergenerational, centuries-long vector of change for like our underlying concepts and words and values. This sort of social justice terminology has come and gained some sort of prevalence really, really fast. Do you sort of wonder where are we going to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Will it have completely changed again? Will it have... I think it's only reasonable to think that it might, right? Oh, definitely. It's a constant evolution in how we see the world. Um, I still remember, it wasn't that long ago, when... um, people would say, um, was it Afro-Americans? I mean, like terminologies change all the time. And it's, um, it's really on the marginalized community to, to, um, to set how they are um, identified. Um, and it'll, as more communities um, uh, um, rise up and um, uh, find their power, they'll be the ones to advocate and say, this is, um, I'm setting the terms on how uh, we want to be addressed, um, and I'm setting the terms on how I want to be seen as a human being. So, yeah, we could definitely expect um, things to change. And the uh, my um, my advice for folks that are like, oh, there's so much stuff that I can't memorize it. I was like, yes, you can. We have the capacity and the capability to do that. It's just the easy way out to say that um, we don't want to. And it's just it's a small thing to ask for someone to say. Um, uh, to use trans instead of um, some other um, antiquated term, and we have we have the internet, so the resources are out there, and um, it's you know, uh, and allies are out there. So reach out to folks that are doing the work who come from your community to help break these down for you. So. It's maybe a bit of an aside, but just one thing that I did want to get in here at some point was like when people are like, oh, it's too complicated, you're bringing too many words in, you guys are overreactive. 
I mean, I hear that. Maybe sometimes we are. But like the one example they always give is using preferred pronouns as if, as if this is like a ridiculous, superfluous request. And this, I think, is a mistake. It really isn't. This is quite integral to respecting someone as a human being, you know? Mm -hmm. And if you doubt that, just talk to a cis, sorry, cis for people who don't know, just means someone who isn't trans. Talk to a cis man and call him young girl for like mm -hmm. two minutes and just, mm -hmm. just, just watch what happens, right? Like, people hate being misgendered, right? And we can totally get that when applied to us. But whenever people sort of, just to piggyback off your like, oh, it's too many, it's too confusing, it's really not. Like, pronouns at least, if, if you don't know what cis means, sure, that's fine. But like, using the right pronouns, I think, should be pretty basic at this point. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's just one way to um, convey your decency as a human being is to um, ask folks. And that, that's, you know, uh, a lot of people are like scared about like, how do I dress it? Just be like, excuse me, what are your pronouns? Or um, making this space more open and saying my pronouns are he, him and his or whatever yeah. um, your pronouns are. So there's a lot of um, tactical ways that we can bring this in that doesn't take reading an entire tome of um, social justice work to understand. And, you know, like I said, it's just about being a decent human being. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And even if you don't buy every aspect of our ideology, um, I'll address people how they want to be dressed for ideologies I explicitly disagree with. So like back in my home country, you know, England, they still have all of these preposterous titles like Baron and Lord and, you know, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. If someone wants to be addressed that way, I will, even if I'm not 100% sold, the, you know, it's just fine, you know, you want to be called Baron von Lichtenstein? Sure, you know? <laughs> like, and for something that's even more fundamental to their identity and for people who, because if anyone's tr oppressed, trans people are, right? And that's not to invalidate other forms of oppression, but like black trans women have a one in eight chance of being murdered. That's, a, that, that's an insane statistic, right? And yeah. if people who are going through that want you to call them a certain thing, just bloody call them it, man. This is not costing you anything, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, that was a bit of an aside. Final <laughs> thoughts is, I think we both agree, right? Looking forward, this sort of worldview, concepts, labels, language has evolved really, really fast. We could be anywhere 20 years from now. Where, where should we be, you know? Like, where, if you were to look back on this conversation 20 years from now and be like, yeah, everything, everything went exactly how I would have wanted it to, what would that look like? Yeah, um, we're going to be on spaceships. <laughs> uh, um, I think looking um, in 20 years from now, we just like how it has always happened, um, we'll look back and kind of laugh that, oh my gosh, I can't believe we were so backwards or archaic then. Um, and um, see that there, you know, it, I hate the word diversity sometimes, but um, uh, working for um, a much more equitable world, equitable burden, diversified world is um, um, one that just makes it a better world for all of us. Um, and we're stronger as a people when we recognize each other's differences rather than um, trying to pretend that they're not there and to really listen to people's stories, right? Um, 
yeah, in 20 years, um, many of these things are going to be, um, uh, it, they're going to be points of shame. And it's on us whether or not we want to be on the side of history that is um, about fighting for everyone's rights and um, space as a human being or fighting against um, their um, uh, their rights to um, uh, to to live and be happy. So, yeah. so con- wrapping it up on that note, if anyone was listening to this and thought, you know what, I would not just like I should be doing more, but like I could, you know, it might be fun to 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 do something practical to support that vision. What what resources would you would you want to refer them to? Definitely. I would first suggest, um, and this is what I always suggest, is um, for folks to look up Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack by Peggy McIntosh. Um, and it talks, it, it's, um, it, it's a couple pages and it talks specifically about um, privilege and what privilege is and isn't. Um, that's a really good starting point. Um, I would look up uh, works by... Um, uh, there's a fantastic Native American scholar named uh, Professor Adrian Keene at Brown University um, that um, uh, that talks about uh, cultural appropriation. There are numerous um, uh, uh, scholars from marginalized backgrounds that are leading in this work that I, um, I think it's high time that uh, we listen to. But really, it starts off in recognizing that we inhabit both places of um, oppression and privilege, and that we can utilize our privilege to um, uh, to support and uplift um, those who are um, um, who uh, do not have um, the advantages that we do. Um, and I'm uh, happy to leave more of my information on here. Um, yeah, I was going to uh, say, yeah. is there any sort of Twitter handle or website you'd want people to follow you personally at? Yeah, you can follow me at, um, at Kala Mendoza, K-A-L-A-M-E-N-D-O-Z-A, or my um, website is Kalayan Mendoza, K-A-L-A-Y-A-A-N-M-E-N-D-O-Z-A.com. Um, and there's numerous, numerous folks on Twitter um, to follow um, um, if you just look up um, the hashtag social justice or um, intersectionality. Um, but yeah, there, there's a, um, a big, beautiful world out there of um, this information. Um, the most important thing is taking that first step and figuring out whether um, you want to make this world a little bit better than when you came into it. All right. That seems like a good full stop. Thanks for coming on the podcast. No problem. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It was awesome. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, then you can catch our other episodes. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm also working on getting our iTunes account set up. Uh, Links to all of that are on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. And if you want to support the show, really the best way to do that, it's a new show, is just help us get the word out, either by sharing or tagging friends who you think might like it. And know that I'm really 
genuinely grateful for anyone who does share or do anything else to help get the word out. I may make a few changes to my schedule and my release dates, and I'll post those on social media. Apart from that, thank you again for listening.